Tell your story, build your brand. ArtMediaNorthwest.com. A-R-T-M-E-D-I-A-N-W.com. Please enjoy this conversation with Paul Brown, part one. Okay. <laughs> Welcome. Hey, thanks, Paul, for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. This is going to be fun. I, I know. Well, let's talk about, I know you as you know a musician and as a photographer, yeah. so can you talk a little bit about kind of your childhood growing up and how you got into the arts? Okay. Well, I grew up in, in Seattle area. My mom was really the, she was sort of the catalyst that got me all the things. When I was growing up, my aunt needed some money, so my parents bought an organ from her, you know, as an exchange. But neither of my parents play an instrument at all, you know. I mean, my dad would sing badly. Uh, but, he, you know, he's just like, don't care, it's fun. And, you know, so music was always around. And then when we bought that organ, I think I was six. And, okay. you know, it was one of those things where my mom looked at me and my brother and said, well, we have this organ, somebody's going to learn to play it. You know, so we started taking lessons. Nice. And so I stuck with lessons for, you know, about four years. And then in fifth grade, you know, in band class, we all had to pick an instrument. And so uh, I picked the snare drum. So it was between that and the saxophone. And guitar wasn't part of, you know, there was no choice for that or anything. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, it was between, I had narrowed it down, guitar and saxophone. I love the saxophone. I still love the saxophone. Not guitar, but, but snare drum and saxophone. Yeah, so... In my dumb fifth grade brain, I was worried about running out of air, so I picked the snare drum. <laughs> so, you know, I was just like, oh, man, if I keep on blowing on that, how am I going to breathe? You know, so I was like, all right, I'll pick the snare drum. So I picked the snare drum, and uh, I played that for a couple of years. My dad didn't enjoy that. You know, right. I, I would play on the desk. I'd play on, you know, I've got my sticks. I'm going to play That's on right. everything. Yeah, so, yeah. The cupboards, the counter. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, that only lasted for a little bit. And then we moved down to Oregon. And the snare drum was a rental, so we, we ended up giving it back, and I never got another one. Okay. But it was sort of around that time uh, when we moved down here that I realized that I, you know, I would look in the Sears catalog, and I would see that, you know, the guitar with the speaker built into it and all. And was, <laughs> I don't even remember what it's called, but I wanted one so badly, and I was, like, looking at it, and it's like I would ask for it for Christmas all the time. and never got it. But it was, it was that sort of time period where I was like, that guitar is really cool, you know? It is, yeah. And uh, so uh, we, had a, we had a friend. He had two guitars, and mm-hmm. so he loaned one to me, and I didn't know anything about playing it, but I realized that it was kind of sort of laid out like an organ, you know? And so yeah. I could figure out single line things. I had no idea how to build a chord or any of that kind of stuff, but I could find notes and I could hear the notes. And so I started playing it, you know, and fiddling around with it, teaching myself stuff. And uh, I remember I tried to I tried to teach myself how to play Best of Both Worlds by Van Halen. I was like, <laughs> yeah, pick on the hardest one, right? And uh, so, yeah, that was, that was sort of where I, you know, got kind of a bug for guitar. I was like, yeah, yeah. yeah that's pretty cool. Did you learn it? But, no, okay. not at that point. Not at that point. Okay. I, I did get what I thought sounded like the right notes sure. in, you know, but not chords or anything like that. Okay. Um, but I got, I, you know, and I had that for maybe about six months. I borrowed that from my friend. Then he moved, so gave it back. I didn't have any instrument for quite a while. That was for until I was about 18. And then I met a girl that had a bunch of guitars. And I borrowed one from her. And she didn't, she showed me some stuff. But then I started taking lessons from a guy. 
and started trying to learn some stuff. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's, I, I really, it, as I think about growing up in my childhood and stuff like that, it was always a guitar. Yeah. Every favorite song always had a killer guitar line, right? <laughs> yeah. So it was well, that just, time period, my God, yeah. the guitar was really up front there. Yeah. I remember when, uh, so when I really decided that guitar, when I found that, it was uh, the Panama video for Van Halen. Mm-hmm. At the end of the video, they've got Eddie dangling from this thing across the stage, and he's playing his guitar all crazy. <laughs> and I just, I looked at that, and I'm like, oh, my God, that looks like fun. Yeah. You know? I was like, that's it. That's what I want to do. I love it. You know? And so at that point, I was like, definitely guitar. And so then I started, you know, seeking it out and um, and really trying to figure it out. When I was 18, I borrowed one, again, from my girlfriend at the time. And uh, when we broke up, I gave it back. But that's when I went down, I went downtown to Apple Music, where we would, we'd, we'd go down there, and we would just, like every kid, like looking at it going, oh, my God, that's so great. Dreaming of all those guitars up on the top. They had a lot of killer guitars in there. They did. Yeah. They did. And she was actually friends with Kelly, the owner. So mm -hmm. we got to see all the cool stuff in the back and all that, you know, so. But I remember, you know, right after we broke up, I didn't have a guitar. I'm like, man, this sucks. So I went down and I actually bought that one from the top row. It's that Les Paul right there. Oh, wow. That's an awesome yeah, Les Paul. I still have it. Yeah. yeah. It was, it's a, it's a hundredth anniversary 1994 i've had it since i bought it brand new and i love that guitar um but yeah it was just one of those things it's like at that point in my life i had no business having that guitar but <laughs> well, it didn't matter it's like you know what that's the one i want the one on the top row don't care i'm having it yeah and i mean i still have it it's i don't know 28 years later well, something like that a great guitar well that can last you a lifetime oh, yeah. you know so yeah. that's that's a great investment actually yeah at any uh, at any point in time, if somebody yeah. can get a great instrument, I think that's a good investment. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, that's been my my number one. I've made a bunch of other ones. Those ones behind you, but that's still the the go to. Yeah. You know, yeah. every time. So, anyways, that's sort of how I got into guitar. Photography was similar. It was one of those. My mom had a camera. Um, it wasn't a great. It was a point and shoot. You know, no big, no, nothing special. But I love cars and stuff like that. And so my dad bought himself a really cool car. You know, I'm 14. My dad's got a, a cool car, and uh, you know, I'd go out and I'd take pictures. I'm like I love cars, and I'd take pictures of it and stuff like that. And I read all the car magazines and stuff. And so I'd see all these really neat pictures and go try to do them. And when I turned 16, I bought my first car and I'd go out and take pictures of my car. And then I started taking the camera with me to snowboarding and stuff like, you know, I'd just take it. I would do out with friends, go it's to fireworks. Part of your, just, uh... It was just there. Yeah. yeah. So when I turned 18 for my 18th birthday, my mom bought me my own camera. You know, it was a, it was a point and shoot. It was Olympus. Um, like with built-in zoom and that kind of stuff. So, you know, but it was my camera. And, and so I'd take it with me everywhere. I took pictures of all kinds of stuff. And was this and, on film or was this digital? Yeah, this is still time? film. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Digital was digital. Yeah. At this point, I don't even, well, there was probably digital cameras, but they were really expensive and mm -hmm. not very good. So yeah, this is all still film. So I'd take pictures of everything. I was in college and I took it up to school, um, to buy my books one day and somebody stole my backpack. And, okay. uh, yeah, so I lost it. So I only had this thing for like a few months before the thing got lost and it was stolen and I was bummed, but I went back to using my mom's camera. It's like, well, you know, I still need a camera. So I'd start taking my mom's camera out and I did that for a few years and I didn't have, I just used her camera all the time. And then when I was 21, my mom again, she like one of those things like, well, I guess this is just a part of you. So why don't I? And so she actually bought me my first SLR 
like film SLR with a couple of lenses and you know the, what, which one was that? Uh, that was a Minolta Maxim 3XI. Okay. Uh, that thing I still have that too. It's in the <laughs> in the closet over there. Put a battery in it and it's good to go still. Nice. Um, yeah, I would take that thing everywhere. I took all kinds of pictures with that. I loved it, right? And so it was really all throughout. It was sort of my mom pushing me, not not necessarily pushing, but sort of recognizing like before I did. in a way. Yeah. yeah, and it always kind of felt like she sort of figured it out before I understood it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, and I think so, moms are good at that sort of yeah. intuition and yeah. seeing things that maybe the kids don't. Yeah. You know, so when I'm six, she, you know, says, well, you're going to learn to play the organ. Somebody's going to learn, you know, and it's like, well, and when I think back, it's just always music was there. Yeah. Me being a, a concert photographer primarily. Yeah. It's the same thing. It's like, it's the music. The music is always the thing that drove me. Yeah. Something about it was always there. And so doing concert photography was just, you know, it was like going to the show my my Seemed friend like a natural step you were going to be yeah. there anyways and you took right pictures, why not take so. a photo yeah yeah for sure so yeah that that actually um that was kind of fun too when i first when i turned 21 a friend of mine was playing the show at the roseland it was mr rattlebones my friend chris olney uh we worked together and he's like hey we're playing a show and i just got this cool camera from my mom you know so i was like hey i just got a cool camera can i bring my camera to the show he's like yeah sure why not you know, so I take my camera, do these photos at the at the show, and uh, I still I posted them online because you know it's like sort of a genesis kind of a, you know sure it's like yeah. this is my first actual you concert start somewhere photo, yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> it's like these are terrible but they're online this is the first one this is where I started you know but it was that kind of thing it's just like take my camera to the show and this is still all film take it hope I got something and each time I would learn a little bit more yeah the shows. Or they have been always notorious for red light, and cameras hate red light. It's just, it overblows everything, right? And so learning oh, how to deal with By that. overblow, it overexposes in a way, or um, not exactly? It just Yeah, the way the camera sees red is um, different. Digital cameras do it too. Um, so the problem that I had with film cameras, I didn't understand exposure very well. In order to get like a fully red shot, you kind of have to underexpose things because it's sensitive to red. And so if you underexpose, then you tend to get more details out of it. If you overexpose, then it blows out and you right. just get like this big field of red, like a, a red shadow looking thing. And so it took a long time to understand how that worked. And I actually read a lot of books trying to understand how cameras work just because, you know, I would, I would get these photos back and I'd be disappointed. I was like, well, I don't understand. What is it that I need to do? How do I make this better? Yeah. You know, so I read a lot of books and tried to figure out how it worked. But yeah, these first, I was so pumped. It's like, I'm at the show. I've got my camera. It's music. Yeah, let's right. do this, you know? <laughs> so yeah, it just sort of all came from there. Well, that's great. That sort of ties into the next one. So how does a photographer develop the skills that you've developed? Time and practice. Yeah. Just like everything else. I, I don't know the full thing, but you know, the thing about 10,000 hours. Yeah. You know, I, I get it. You put in a lot of time. I always have that sort of in my head. It's like, you're not going to be really, really good at something until you put the time into it. Yeah. You're a musician. You know how much time goes into this. It's yeah. like people, um, people that haven't actually tried it, haven't experienced it for themselves or tried it for themselves don't always understand how much effort actually goes into it behind the scenes, yeah. how many hours we put into this kind of thing. It's the same thing with, you know, photography. You pick up a camera and you start taking pictures. This is super cool, right? Everybody's got a phone now. Everybody can take pictures. So there's pictures all over. So how do you differentiate yourself? That's the technical part of it, right? right? And there's creativity and there's skill and technical. 
Right. And they have to go together. Right. And the skill and the technical is also like there's things like depth of field and then there's, Mm -hmm. um, you know, understanding the different like aperture and ISO and all that stuff. How all those pieces go together. There was a book. I wish I could remember the name of it. It's called, I can't remember the author. It was called Understanding Exposure. And that's the one that really opened things up for me. I had actually taken one class in college. This was like early on in college when I was 18 and I had that it was like early college. No, maybe it was my SLR. Anyways, whatever it was, that class was, it was a beginning photography class. And I thought, man, sure, you know, right. let's do this, see what I can do. And it was a really fun class. I enjoyed it a lot. What I realized is you can have a creative vision, but if you don't have the skills to make it come true, then, you know, it's cool. You can see it. Right. But there's some technical background that you have to get. And for me, so I'm sort of a, I mean, I'm, in, I'm a software engineer and, and, you know, I started out in college as studying mechanical engineering, that kind of stuff. So the technical side of things is interesting to me. I like understanding how it works. Um, I don't think anybody needs to fully understand how it works, but you got to have some understanding of how all the pieces go together. So ISO, aperture, and shutter speed, those are the three components. If you don't get how those three things work together, you don't get photography, (laughs) right? You have to start with those or you get nothing. Once you get an idea how those things work, then you can start understanding depth of field and stuff like that. The aperture will control your depth of field. But if you change the aperture to get a shallow depth of field to get that really soft portrait background kind Mm -hmm. of thing, you have to understand how to change your ISO and your shutter in order to compensate for the amount of light that's coming in because of that aperture, (laughs) right? So there's... There's, there's all those things in that book. Anybody who's starting out with photography, I totally recommend that book. It's so great. It's called Understanding Exposure. Yeah. Yeah, that book. And he's written other books too, but that book was like, you want to start? That's where you start. Totally. But yeah, this college class that I had, it was another one. And that was a, it, it was interesting because the one assignment that always stands out and really remember was the one I was most worried about when I did it. It was a panorama. It's all on film. And the assignment was to shoot a panorama, develop the film, and then put it together, right? <laughs> so you're, I mean, basically you're making kind of like this mosaic puzzle yeah. of, of the panorama, right? Everybody was going downtown, shooting from OMSI, you know, getting cityscape, you know, totally, of course, that's what you do with panorama. I mean, I have one right there, yeah. right? Something in my head said, do something different. I'm like, all right, cool, what do I do? And I'm sitting here and I had my Les Paul on, on a stand and I had that purple base on a stand. And I thought, what if I take multiple close-up shots of those and mix and match it? And so I did. So I took full close-up shots of each one. And then in the middle of it, like in the middle of the neck, I would, of the, I would have the Les Paul neck, but I would take and put a base picture in the <laughs> middle of this neck. So I had this weird puzzle. Yeah. You know, and then I had for the body, I had part of the Les Paul, I had part of the base, you know, and so I put this thing together. I was so worried that I had screwed it up because I, <laughs> you know, so we had to put it on a poster where we take it in, show it to the class. Everybody critiques it, right? And I took it to class, put it up there, and I'm looking around and everybody's got these really cool, you know, downtown panorama, cool things. And I've got this weird ass guitar, you know, so teacher's going around, the class is going around and she's talking about each one. She gets to mine and she just stops. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh God, you know, I was like, oh geez, yeah, what's going on here? And she goes, I want everybody to look at this. This is what I'm talking about. I'm like, holy crap, are you kidding me? (laughs) She loved it. She's like, this is something, it's the assignment, it's a panorama, but it's different. It's, and I'm just sitting there, I'm like, oh my God, this is cool. Yeah. 
the creative else saw your creativity you know? right it's, it's kind yeah of cool when that happens yeah and so the creative and the technical have to go together because if you don't i mean if you don't have creativity anybody can go and reproduce something half my life well more than half my life as a musician is reproducing somebody else's stuff right yeah. and that's super useful because you, when you do that you hopefully pick up bits and pieces of whatever it is that you, as I'm you know taking a panorama of port I have somebody else's shot in mind or whatever you know like I've seen something like hey I want to try to do that and then I do my version of it but with bits and pieces I'm learning pieces all the time but yeah it always goes back to those three things the shutter aperture and iso if you don't get it then you know you're spending more time on it <laughs> yeah for sure and you know there's there's things it's like cameras have really cool auto modes and you know that's you know the phone cameras they have they have great auto modes and they're super good for what they're used for right um if you want to do a landscape with a phone Hell yeah, that thing's going to be great. That's exactly what that kind of camera is used for. Portraits with the phone are a lot harder. And, yeah. and it's because you can't control the aperture because of the way the thing is built. And that gets into the technical side of things. It's the you know sensor size versus aperture and lens size and all that kind of stuff. It all goes together. And on a phone, the sensor size is so small that it's super hard to get any kind of depth of field control on it. So for a landscape, when you want depth of field for miles... That phone, that's exactly what that lens is supposed to do. That's how it's built. But if you want that really soft portrait at background, then you need a bigger camera, basically a bigger sensor, right? Yeah. And that's why old-timey photos where you see the guy with the hood on his head mm -hmm. and he's got this big old thing, those things are great for that kind of stuff because that depth of field is going to be so narrow, but that picture is going to be great. Um, and it's just because the size of the the lens and its and its physical location to the in that case would have been a wet plate that controls everything, right? Nobody needs to understand that to get a good picture. Yeah. yeah, but if, if but you for really me it was important. It. Yeah, lens size will make a difference. Mm -hmm. um, if you have a long telephoto lens, like seventy you know, to two hundred. Yeah, something like that. It'll actually so each kind of lens will distort your image in a in a particular way. Right. A shorter lens closer to your subject will actually kind of make the subject a little bit more three D, but it distorts it in a way that sort of stretches it. Right. For like a person, if you're going to take a picture, if you want just a real nice headshot of a person, you kind of want to be, depending on what kind of camera you have, you would like an 85 millimeter lens is considered like the best kind of a lens for that sort of thing on a full frame camera. For a headshot yeah. portrait? Yeah. And the reason it is, is because if you get too wide, then it'll make your nose look longer. Mm -hmm. If you get too far away with a long lens, it'll smoosh your nose together and make it a little bit shorter, flatter. Right. And like an 85 is sort of right in that sweet spot where your facial features aren't distorted as much. It looks most natural. Like for a lion shot or something like that, getting a shorter lens closer to the subject will give you more power. Right. It makes it bigger and, and fills it, you know, whereas if you were to try and get that shot from a further distance away, it changes the angle of subject to camera has to change. Right. It'll be more level. So it'll look sort of more subdued even if like the very same shot okay it's the same kind of thing i do with concert photography one of the things that i've always done and because i like the way it looks is i'll use a shorter lens and i sort of squat down below the guy right and i shoot, so shoot upward up. angle yeah which is like if you read the books and stuff like that it's a technical no-no because now you're just shooting up the guy's nose right 
But in a concert setting, what I end up getting is all the lights and, and it gives movement to the photo. Whereas if I was standing back with a long lens, it's a guy on a stage. So you kind of feel the energy of that when you're looking at that. Yeah. And so that's always been one of the things that I go for is I just sort of, I try to get the, the down low shot so I can get some lights in the background and it's sort of, you can hide a lot of the other junk on the stage, right? right? If there's so much things, yeah, exactly. You know, so it makes it look like those, the photos in the magazines and stuff like that. So that's, that's one of the things, but yeah, it all goes back to the technical side of things. It's like, for me, what happened was you know, those first concert shots, it's like, I didn't know what I was doing. I was taking pictures, having a good time. I get the photos back. I'd be a little bit disappointed. And I would think about it. What is it that, how how do I do this better? What do I do differently? That kind of thing. And then it would take me, it's like, well, I got to go find some answers. And so when I took that photography class in college, it's because, I mean, the internet was brand new. I went to college in the early nineties. So there wasn't as much stuff. It was a little bit harder to find. I'd go to the library, I'd read things. And I was like, well, I'll just take a class and they can tell me how these things work. And that was like the beginning. Um, but what happened is things started switching to digital. And as a college kid, I was broke. You know, I had no, I didn't have money to go develop. I didn't, I never did dark, dark room stuff. So I couldn't, I didn't do my own dark room. I always had it developed. Um, so I'd buy film and I'd have to like sparingly use it because I couldn't afford to get it developed. I couldn't afford more roles. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I started taking fewer and fewer photos, um, as a college kid because I just couldn't do it. I couldn't afford it. But at that same time, digital started coming out and I'm always interested in how stuff works and new things. And, and so what I ended up doing is after a while, when I met my wife, I was in college at the time and, uh, you know, we were going to start a family. And so we thought, Hey, well, let's, you know, let's get a little video camera. And they had, there was a Sony video camera that also took stills. And so that was my first video. That was my first digital camera. Right. And what I realized is that I'm not a videographer. Right. Because some of the basics are the same. It's just, it's not. I mean, they're completely separate things, even though they both use a camera and that kind of stuff. It's just, it's a different specialty. Yeah. And I just realized that I'm kind of not a videographer. I really like the still photos and I'll do video here and there, but I had this video camera. And so I used it for stills all the time. Hardly ever took any video, <laughs> but I use it for stills all the time. But it was that same kind of thing. I would get the, I would get the photos, I'd load them on my computer and I'd be disappointed. But this time I was disappointed because the camera couldn't do what I wanted it to. It just, the technology wasn't there, right? Right. I'd get this little 640 by 480 photo. It was all grainy and weird. I'm like, yeah, it's a photo. I don't care. You know what I mean? It (laughs) just, it just wasn't exciting. I wasn't, I was, I was bummed out. And so I didn't take a lot of photos because it would just bum me out every time. And I still have my film camera, but I use that every once in a while. But it wasn't until several years later, um, when digital cameras started getting better, I bought myself one. And, you know, really kind of fell in love with it again. Like, oh, yeah, you know, I start taking better pictures. It wasn't a great camera. It was like one megapixel or something like that. But it was so much better than the other one. I kept graduating up. And at that point, what I started doing was I would use a camera until I realized I couldn't do what I wanted to with it. And then I'd start looking at other stuff. I was like, well, this one can do this. And and each time it was because I'd learned something new about how the camera worked. And so I had this other camera and I started going to shows again. I met, I actually met you and I met Joff. It was, it was the same as before with the SLR camera. It was like, you know, Joff would play a show and I was like, well, cool. Do you mind if I bring my camera? He's like, yeah, sure. Why not? You know, so I'd start taking my camera to the show again. It's like, oh yeah, this is cool. And again, it goes, it goes back to music every time. 
right? Yeah. It's like, that's what I do. And so that's what makes me happy. And so I just keep doing it that way. As I kept on going, I would find out those three pieces, aperture, shutter, and ISO. I would use those. And then I would learn new things like depth of field control and all this other stuff and how it all goes together. And each time I would just use that information. Once I realized that the camera that I had was sort of reaching its limits or, you know, technologically it was getting behind or whatever, you know, that I could get these better photos with this other thing. Or, you know, I started doing, and that's when I started upgrading and get to where I currently am. But each time I did it, it was because I learned a new thing. I learned, I went from that little point and shoot camera that had like the micro four thirds sensor on it. And I went to an APS-C that had a bigger sensor, and I did that because I got better depth of field control. Or that camera had better ISO handling, right? So in, in a digital sense, ISO is just noise, and noise is heat. And so the camera sensor could deal with heat better because it was bigger, which meant the pixels are a little bit farther apart. Less heat means lower noise. And so I could shoot at a higher ISO, which is awesome for shows. I could shoot a higher ISO and still be able to stop the motion. And I could get that photo because those three pieces kept on working. So when you bump up the ISO or the ISO, that you want the shutter speed quicker, right? Typically, or there's going to be blur. Right. Not, not, yeah. like, not desirable bokeh, but yeah, actual, yeah. actual like motion blur. image. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because the way those three things balance together, a higher ISO means that it's more sensitive, essentially. It'll, it'll, it's more sensitive to light. By increasing the ISO, you're allowing more light to hit the sensor or collect more light on the sensor. At some point, you start going too bright. And so you have to raise the shutter speed in order to bring the range back down within. What that does is, like you said, it stops the motion blur. So if you increase the ISO and leave the shutter where it is, then you get motion blur. Or you can control that by increasing the aperture too. So you can make the aperture smaller, which will effectively do the same thing. But for a concert, you want to stop the motion and aperture won't stop your motion. The shutter does that. And so it's just understanding how those three things balance with each other, right? And so each time I would get this new camera, I would... I realized at a point, it was like, okay, well, I guess concerts are what I'm doing. So, you know, so that's always been sort of my decision-making process when I'm looking at new cameras or something like that. How is this going to benefit? So for better low, we'll call it low light photography, yep. like, yep. you know, and, and action, you know, <clears throat> obviously there's movement in a concert. Yeah. What is your camera of choice at the moment as of 2019? Yeah. Um, what I'm using right now is a Canon 5D Mark III. The reason I'm using the Mark III is because it has better low light. There's a Mark IV, and it's got the megapixels are crazy high on that one. So mine's only, I think mine's a 22 megapixel, maybe 27, I don't remember. There's the Mark IV is a 50 megapixel, so you can get much bigger shots, much more detail, all that kind of stuff. But in order for them to cram that many more pixels onto the very same sensor size, the ISO go. Noise handling doesn't work as well, so mm. it's grainier. It doesn't handle high ISO like mine does. And that was another one of those, I guess I have to understand how this technology works yeah. before I really know what I'm trying to do. Because there's a lot so, of options, you know, yeah, even just in the tons. Canon realm, you know, there's, yeah. you, you go from somewhere around three or 400 up to 600 or so, up to 900, you know, $1,000, and then up yeah. into the five, $6,000 range. Yeah. Pretty easily, pretty quick and easy. Yeah, yeah. No, cameras are not cheap. No. no. That's uh, the same with 
guitars and music. I was right. Like, I did not pick two cheap things. <laughs> I, well, it's and good I'm doing thing them you both. Got that software engineering gig <laughs> right, to... <laughs> right. I got that day job to do yeah. it. But yeah. But you... Yeah. Neither of them is cheap, but they're no. both worth it. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> so what do you do other than photography and music? And you did mention software engineering. Yeah. So that's I, kind of a lot. I tend to leave the software engineering part out of this. That's day job. <laughs> that pays for my fun, yeah. right? So I, I said before, I love cars. I don't have I don't have an old car right now, but I, I, at one point I'm going to have an old car. I love working on them. I love fixing them. And so I do something like that. I do a lot of woodworking. I've made several guitars. Yeah, beautiful <clears throat> my, guitars. The bass that I made, the purple one that I mentioned earlier, I made that when I was 18. Wow. Just decided, hey, I'm a woodworker. I can do this. Why not? So I figured out how it worked and, and did you do put the it neck together. Did you do the neck and the fretwork and everything? I didn't. Or? I bought the neck. Right. I don't have... That's the way to do it. Yeah. I think. Yeah. So you made the body. You painted it. Yep. Made it, painted it, hooked up the electronics, wired them all in, figured out how to solder and wired it all up, put it together. It actually plays pretty good. I made it a long time ago. It's a five string, but it's got four string pickups on it. So there, the response between the strings isn't exactly even. Okay. But it's still Is that because of where the pole pieces are? Yeah. Or? Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. The the pickup doesn't line up with the strings. So I get some highs and lows and some weird stuff, but I still love that thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, you could probably get some cool, unusual sounds recording with it or something. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I love that thing. But yeah, so woodworking. 10, 11, 12 years ago, something like that, I decided I had a, I had a sabbatical from work. So I had two and a half months off and I decided I would carve a guitar. Wow. Like, I'd just get a big piece of wood and I, so that I made the tiki guitar. So that was me with a, with one knife. With uh, one knife? One the little whole, carving knife. The whole thing. Wow. I, I, I carved it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I cut the shape out and then carve the whole face into it and uh, is it still two pieces glued together in the middle or is it actually one piece of wood um yeah it's it two pieces book matched yeah yeah it's made of base wood i think that's how you say it. base wood basswood basswood maybe yeah. because it's a it's a softer wood it's easier to carve instead of like doing it out of maple which would have taken forever right or oak <laughs> yeah right <laughs> let me get something real hard right. let's do this out of ebony <laughs> yeah. or some of the african woods like uh yeah. i think b- babinga and yeah uh, like wenge and all that yeah kind of Stuff, yeah, yeah. yeah, that one, it was a lot of fun. Like I said, I'd just, I'd wake up in the morning, I'd go out and I'd carve. It took me probably about 40 hours to carve the face into it. I routed out the hole for the pickup and Very woodworking. Cool. One just, of a kind. Yeah, it was just one of those things. It's like, well, I like woodworking. I like music. Why don't I do the both? There right? you go. You find a way to put your things exactly. together like that. And you have a family? I have a wife. You have a wife? Yep. 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 Just us and a cat. You and a cat. Well, that's a family. Yep. Yeah. We had a, a dog very a happy ago. cat. Yeah. 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 She's cool. She's cool. Yeah. Did the place and time that you grew up have an impact on how you learned? Yeah. I mean, I think for people of our age, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> you know, growing up without a computer, I I did have computers fairly young, but I never not like I, I never used them like today. In fact, as a software engineer, I avoided computers all the way through college. Wow. I like literally did not want anything to do with college with computers. It's like I just don't want to do it. 
not interested, don't want, and this job was, uh, I always used computers and I, you know, I learned how to program in basic and, you know, so I knew, I knew how to work it. It's just, I just never wanted a job doing this. It was always kind of a thing, but it's a good job. I'm not going to argue about that. And uh, I, I had a friend that was working there and she said, well, I know you hate your job right now is working in retail. And I just wasn't very happy. It was at a computer store and wasn't my interest. Right. If I was smart, I would have gone and worked in a music store and then things would have been all different. But I mean, <laughs> Yeah, instead I got a job in a computer store. But my friend, she's like, well, I know you hate your job. You want me to pass on a resume? I'm like, sure, why not? And here I am 20 years later. Why not? There you go. <laughs> the time that we grew up, computers weren't really a thing. You know, it was it was a toy. It was something to play with. But, you know, I'd go out and ride my skateboard before I'd ever even think about a computer. And so the way that we had to learn... You know, we'd go to the library, figure something out, go check out a book, uh, you know, ask somebody, go take a class. Now, the way that I learn, uh, you know, if I, if I hear something or I hear an idea or want to try something out, I just go Google it, look it up on the Internet. It, it's different. The information is right there at my fingertips. It's just me having to figure out how to filter it versus when I was a kid, you know, trying to learn how to work a camera, take a picture, get a photo back a week later and go, huh, crap. What happened there? And then have to try to figure out. It's like, well, that's not what I was trying to do. Gee, what was I trying to do? How do I do that? And then go have to go figure it out and do the research. Where today I can I can look up the idea and it's like, well, this is what I'm trying to do. So how would I actually do that? How do I approach that? Somebody has already written that. So yeah, it's it's very different. I um, think so too. <laughs> but as a I realize my day job enables so, you know, I have to I have to have balance with that. <laughs> no, that's I think it's great. Well, it seems like you've achieved a good balance because you obviously do. You play in two bands. Yep. You do photography yep. a lot. Yep. And you're very good at it and and you have a stable job. Right. You got to do what you like doing. Yeah. You figure out what it is and be open to whenever it comes. Like I said, when I was a kid and my mom was making me learn the organ and mm -hmm. I say making because yeah. that's really what it was, you know, <laughs> it was like, I mean, I get it now. It was totally the foundation for all of the things. But at that point in time, it was like, man, I want to go out and play. I want to ride my bike. I want to do this. I don't want to go to organ lessons. This is boring. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I don't want to play Marietta Little Lamb. I remember uh, when I finally got to play The Entertainer and King of the Road. Oh, man, those were so great. And I was like, I actually get to play a cool song. This right. is great. You know? Yeah. You know? So. Scott Joplin was awesome. Yep. What mentors did you have along the way that come to mind? That's a tough one. Um, I never really had... A mentor in the way that I, th the way that I consider a mentor is, you know, somebody who's there guiding you and making sure, you know, teaching you and showing you how things work. I didn't really have that. I had, I had influencers. I would, okay. I would say uh, my mom definitely, because like I said before, she seemed to realize that I wanted to do these things before I kind of understood it, Yeah. you know, and sort of was like, yeah, go ahead. I remember when I bought that Les Paul, uh, I bought a half stack with it too. Right. And I brought that thing home and, um, my mom wasn't home, and so I thought I'd be funny, and I set it up right in the middle of the front room. Just big old half stack right there, right? My mom walks in. I'm sitting on the couch with my guitar in this half stack right in the middle of her front room, and I was expecting her to be like, what is that? Oh, man. And she's like, oh, cool. What'd you get? You know? <laughs> it was totally... She's like completely chill with it and she's like well show me how it works so I turn it on and I turn it up it was super loud way louder than I ever needed was it a Marshall or? no it was a it was an Ampeg okay uh, it was a tube head it's like VT 100 something like that it was okay. a guitar amp yeah. with the with a 412 Jackson cabinet yeah it was pretty cool I actually I traded it at five star oh nice <laughs> <Yeah>. um <laughs> what in did fact you... 
I got that Epiphone Joe Pass right there. Nice. Yeah, I love that thing. I used to have one of those. Yeah, I love yeah. that guitar. Yeah, those are great guitars. Yeah, so I turned it on and playing with it and all kinds of stuff. Like I said, I had no business having that, but it was, <laughs> you know, it's like, ah, I'm going to have it. Yeah. So I got all done. I turned it off and I started taking it apart. And my mom looked at me and she goes, well, you can leave it there if you want. And I was like, are you kidding me? No, I'm not <laughs> leaving it in the front room. Come on. You know, so I took it up to my room, but it was that kind of thing. So it was her just sort of being like, yeah, go try it if you want to try it. Do it. Yeah. Go ahead. That's cool. You like photography? Here's a camera. Go, go do it. So there's influencers like that, you know, and then there, I think that's there's, important. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Especially if you're young and you don't have the sort of stubborn perseverance to like right. do something right. when there is resistance, you know, because right. we're, we're going to run into resistance one way or another along the way. Yeah, for know? sure. Yeah. So yeah, there's that. And then, you know, there's educators and things like that, like the, that camera class that I took. You know, I mean, I don't remember her name or anything like that, but it was just that panorama was really where it cemented it for me. I was like, oh, dude, maybe I can do this. Maybe there is something there, you know, it's not just me doing this. I came up with this cool idea. Well, it's nice to have some validation with your creativity, because I think a lot of people put something out there and they're just like, there it is. I don't know if it's good or not or whatever, but. So how should people go about finding their passion or starting their creative life? That's a tough one. For me, it was just being open to it. And with the camera, it was like, well, I guess this is just a thing. You know, somebody stole my other camera. Well, I'll just use this other one. And it wasn't like a conscious thought process. It wasn't like, well, I'm going to be a photographer. It's just, this is fun. I like this. I like what I get back out of it. I like the feedback that I'm coming from. Music is the same way. You know, it's like I played that drum for a couple of years and I mean, I was, I don't know, 12. I was terrible at it. I played it for a couple of years and I tried to learn it and, and realized that it took a long time. But like I said, that guitar was always in the background, mm-hmm. right? It was always there. And once I finally got my hands on them, I was like, yeah, yeah, this is comfortable. This is me. This is right. And it's just being, it's being open and available to it. Right? So maybe trying different things. Definitely. And figuring out what fits. Yeah, definitely. You know, now I'm I I consider myself a bass player at this point. I was a guitarist for 20 some years, right? And then my buddy Ted, when we were starting Bad Ellie, which is our original, it's a pop punk, so it's Ted's ideas. And so he had all these ideas for songs and he was trying to figure out, he was trying to put a band together to get them to do them. You know, we started talking and initially he asked me if I'd want to play guitar. I'm like, yeah, sure. That'll be fun. Let's do it. And uh, it was like one of those things where it's like, well, you know, you just say yes. It's like, oh, sure. Yeah. Someday we'll do that. It'll It'll be be great. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. yeah, We'll do that. We'll do that. You know, a while passed and I had posted a picture of my bass that I made because I take pictures of stuff and uh, I had posted it online and he saw it. He talked to Keith, our drummer. Then he came back to me and he's like, hey, you you have a bass. You play bass, right? And so I'm like, well, if you want me to play bass like a guitar, heck yeah, I play bass. Let's do it. <laughs> he's like, okay, cool. Let's get together next week. And, and, you know, at that point, I was just like, whoa, what did I just do? <laughs> like, oh, man. What did I, I get myself I just, into? I just agreed to, and there's actually a thing going to happen right. now. This isn't just, and um, it's, it's interesting in that. I'm super shy. Um, I always have been. I've always been afraid of like a public failure or something like a big mistake or being bad at it or, you know, something like that. And so that was actually my first actual band. First time I'd ever joined a band. I played along with, you know, the five-star student concerts and stuff like that and sat in with Ants in the Kitchen one one or two times and played a couple of songs. 
was so nervous, just overwhelming nervous, right? And to finally just have this thing in front of me and go, oh crap, we're actually going to go do this? Oh man, I don't know. So I showed up and we, we started playing. We had a great time. Yeah. So much fun. And it kept on going like that. And each, each little step, it was just a matter of saying, why not? Yeah. Let's try it. But it took me 20 some years to get there. But yeah, once I did, it's like, okay, all right. Now, oh crap, I'm going to have to do this in front of other people. Oh, wow. <laughs> Jeez, what am I going to do? You know, it was a similar thing with photography. Photography is a little bit easier to share stuff because you don't have to be right there yeah so digitally take some photos put them online people like them people don't like them it's like you know it can just sort of roll off art is subjective anyways so yeah. if they don't like it you can kind of like yeah right right as long as i liked it that was cool but it wasn't it wasn't so personal when i would share these things right it's, it, being with an audience is much different from the audience of photography and so sharing my photos was always easier because i could do it privately in my own home they go online and then i could consume the feedback as i needed it to step on stage for those first few times it's like there's an audience right there if i screw up i screw up and they're gonna know it and i'm gonna be so all these things going through my head yeah and i'm sure you can remember the first time you did too this, oh yeah you know the same kind of thing and i remember the biggest mistake i made and it's actually i'm happy that it happened the way that it happened too okay because now i can look back at it and go i already did that right, i don't have yeah. to worry about that one now right <laughs> the biggest mistake i made was we were playing a show at the doug fur it was a sold out show wow yeah um That's so a great room. like this oh man it was yeah. so great we got to play there twice i think yeah sold out show packed audience i'm up there and, you know, I knew which song we were supposed to be playing. We had two songs that are kind of similar in, in a different key. Okay. And I played the wrong one. And it starts out with drums and bass. bass. <laughs> and here I am just playing the wrong thing. And I knew it was wrong. And I could not for the life of me figure out why it was wrong. And I played a good deal into it before I figured out what the heck I was doing. And I remember Evan, the singer, he's he's at the microphone. And I'm playing. And I'm just... I have, I'm struggling i can't figure this out and he looks back at me with this look like what the heck are you doing <laughs> i'm like i don't know <laughs> i don't know what's going on and when it dawned on me that i was playing and i was like <gasps> you know so i start playing the right but i finish up the song you know and i'd taken lessons with joff years and years right and we talked about it over and over again and i understood that it's not necessarily the mistake it's the recovery Right. That's how you get out of it, yeah. right? And so all the practice we put in is about the recovery. Well, and any mistake is an opportunity to learn something, you know, and, and that's sort of the takeaway from anything. It's like you're going to make mistakes, right. like every one of us. Yeah, yeah. So now, you know, I mean, that experience, um, the reason that, I mean, I'm glad that it happened and I'm glad it wasn't in front of a smaller crowd. I mean, it was a big crowd and now I can just look at it and go, yeah. Yeah, I did that, you know, and so now when I make a mistake, I make mistakes all the time. And uh, when I make a mistake, it's about not telegraphing that mistake. Mm -hmm. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it's not like, making that, don't oh, make that face. noise. Don't make that look, you know, it's just like going, ah, whatever, I made a mistake. Right. And, you, yeah. and, you, and you move on like nothing happened. Right. And, you it's know, part of the song. And as a, as an audience member, as a photographer, I've been to, I don't even know how many shows I've been to anymore. I've completely lost track. And what occurred to me is that as an audience member, I have never cared about a mistake. Not ever. Don't care. You make a mistake, you telegraph the mistake all you want. I don't care. I'm moving on. Right. It's done and over and gone. 
no big deal. Yeah, right? water under the bridge. Yeah. yeah, and so that was that was sort of a neat realization for me. It's like, okay, well, Good. I can do this if I make a mistake. Man, whatever, you yeah. know. But it took so long for me to get to that point. I don't remember what the question was anymore. We got what, we got off, but <laughs> we, got, we got there and then beyond. So that's okay. How has technology changed art, photography, and the creative arts in general, in your opinion? You know, working where I do, doing what I do for a day job, it's a hundred percent changed. Technology, digital, the internet, all of that stuff. Yeah, it's so easy to get immediate feedback you do all of your work put it out there people see it immediately you get people feed feedback right mm-hmm. photography you know i'm on instagram i'm on facebook those are my primary the you know every time i post a picture people like it people don't like it whatever it is they build in all these insights and all this other stuff so you can really see what's going on for the most part 20 years ago it was like i take a picture i'd get it developed and i'd look at it and i go that's cool and i'd put it in a box Right. You know, <laughs> you know sometimes it. sometimes I would share them with friends. I'd put it in an album. People come over, you know, and, and yeah. so so it's really different. It's interesting to me because my day job is to enable all of that stuff. I mean, <laughs> if, it, if it wasn't for that, I mean, if you've got a computer processor, chances are I worked on it in the last 20 years. Trying to balance those things and that that stuff changes everything. Like I said, when I first started out, I never learned darkroom. And so I didn't have the physical darkroom, you know, chemicals and all this stuff that goes along with it. I didn't start doing that stuff until digital darkroom, right? And so with that, I mean, that opened everything up for me. Now I would take that picture instead of having that weird red picture that I got back a week later and I couldn't figure out what to do with it. Now I can do something. So that darkroom, the digital darkroom, mm-hmm. it really opened things up. Do you use Adobe Lightroom and yeah. Photoshop? Yeah. 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 Those are the primary. Um, so Lightroom... I mean, I think any photographer should use Lightroom or something like it. it my catalog is, I want to say, probably 250,000 photos. It's big. Wow. I got a lot. Yeah, <laughs> there's you, there's a whole lot of hard drives right there. <laughs> how do you store stuff? Yeah, what type yeah. of hard drives do you use? I've got around 31 terabytes of hard drive. Ooh. That's a lot of hard drives. So <laughs> I, my, just, I, I was impressed with myself for buying a little 4 terabyte, you know, little yeah, yep. orange mm-hmm. thing. Uh, yep, the Lissy ones. Lissy, yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't have I don't have a Lassie, but I've got uh, actually I have a, a wireless four terabyte hard drive. Or no, it's two terabyte. Anyways, it's a wireless hard drive. I can just on my network and I can access it from anywhere. So that one was cool. That is cool. Um, and I've got a bunch of portable hard drives that I can plug in all that stuff. I realized I had this just spaghetti mess of external hard drives and then I had like five or six internal hard drives I had to keep getting bigger power supplies for my computer to run all the hard drives and so what I ended up doing is I broke down and I bought a, a network attached storage a NAS, a NAS enclosure it's got four hard drives in it and the cool thing about that is that it I have it set up as a RAID 5 uh, which is an auto backup so if one of my drives gets lost if something happens to one of the drives I can swap it out and the system will re- rebuild itself so I don't lose any information wow I've had a hard drive crash well I've had multiple hard drives crash and I've always been lucky knocking on wood that I haven't lost any significant amount of data yet um, I've lost some stuff because when stuff happens but there was one drive that I lost it was a it was a portable drive that I was using I lost it. But the good news is I had everything backed up on it already. So I had it in a different place. So what I really lost was my time and my edits. Sure. Um, but I didn't actually lose the original raw. photo. I could go back and work it again. Do um, you shoot raw when you? Yes. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Basically, I shoot raw and full manual. 
Um, I don't, I don't like the camera's decision making. <laughs> That's pretty much anybody who's good at it says the same thing yeah. for the most part. Yeah. I think with video it's different, you know, cause sometimes you do need the autofocus, but yeah, well I, yeah. And I use, so I use the autofocus. So my camera has like 61 point autofocus and all this cool, crazy stuff. And I turn all that stuff off. Right. I literally use, I have a single point of focus and then my camera has the ability to expand to the nine points so basically i have my focus point is always in the center for shows because then i know where it's at and i can there's other buttons and stuff that i can use to manage and, and lock my focus and my exposure and all that kind of stuff and then like for portraits or something like that i just move that that single point of focus around so that i can reorient the camera landscape or portrait that kind of thing um, but i'll move that point of focus around because i don't want the camera to focus on something i'm not i want it to do just what i want it to do you point on the screen to choose your focus point or you Mine is not a touch screen. Okay, so, neither is mine. Yeah, so there's a little joystick thing on the back ah, where I can use it. and I can move it around. At a, at a concert or something like that, I don't have time to do that. And so I leave it in the center because that way I know exactly where that so point is. So then you is. move the camera for the right. point. That yeah, so what I use is on the back of the camera, there's an autofocus, auto lock. Okay. Um, and what it'll do is when I focus that center point, I can lock it, which will lock both the exposure and the focus and then I can shift the camera around as needed you know so if I want to put them sort of over on the side because a centered subject is hardly ever dynamic right and so I'll lock that focus and I'll move it a little bit and then take the shot basically hope that by that point the person hasn't moved so much that it's out of focus okay yeah so you use the rule of thirds when you're taking those pictures almost always yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. basically i see it in rule of thirds okay um you know so it's just sort of become ingrained i don't really think about it an awful lot it's actually interesting because because i don't think about it all the time i sometimes i'll be editing and i'll you know look at it and i I, you know i tend to crop things a little bit because especially for shows i'll leave it a little bit wide because that way i make sure i get what i'm looking for um and i'll crop things but um it's funny because without thinking about the rule of thirds, I'll turn on the crop and I always have the tic-tac-toe board mm-hmm. set for for the crop thing. And I look at it, I'm like, I don't have to crop it. It's right on. <laughs> Done. Nice. You know, and, you know, for the, the rule of thirds, is it's interesting. It really does work. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a kind of a basic idea to wrap your head around. But once you get it and then you, you don't have to think about it. like if you're doing a portrait, you want, you know, eyes or smile or something like that right on one of those dynamic points and then you're done, you know. And so it uh, it's just it's the way that we've been, I guess, taught to see things. There's a natural and then there's how things are presented and all of that sort of goes together. And that rule of thirds really fits with a lot of stuff. When you're taking photos of a band uh, in a darker room, what is your go to lens for that? Ah, good one. This goes back to the ISO, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons I use the 5D um, Mark III is because the ISO handling on that thing is super good. It's really, really good. So I can shoot at ISO 3200 super clean, like wow. really low noise. I can go up to 64 uh, with software. I can take that down. It gets a little bit soft on the edges. You know, you don't get the crisp, nice, but for for a concert photo, it's great. Um, and if you're trying to go black and white, oh man, it's so great. Because that that noise then turns into that really kind of cool grain that you get with black and white. Mm-hmm. It really makes it feel good. And so at, at 6,400, 
up to 12,800 on my camera. So my camera will actually go to 102,000. Wow. It gets really noisy. After about 12,000, you can't really fix the noise. You just have to live with it. Mm -hmm. Um, So then do you switch it to black and white if you have to live with the noise? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which actually works for me because I love black and white. So it's just, it's one of those things. So I'm colorblind. And so that's actually one of the things color. I'm, I'm actually really colorblind, not just like, you know, the red, green, the, the, the common colorblind. Um, I'm much further than that. Um, I am, I can't remember the name of it. I'm deficient in two of the cones. Um, it's, it's like this really small subset of colorblind people. Like I remember my eye doctor, every time I get a new eye doctor, they always are super fascinated. Uh, I was like, oh, can we do the test? You know, so, <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but like the spread was like 95% of color blindness is red green. And then there's like two to 3% of people that actually have what I've got. And then there's like 2% of people that are full color blind. So yeah, I'm up there in the color blindness. So there's, there's a lot of stuff that I don't see right. But because I've always been colorblind, I see what I see, same as everybody else, right? Everybody sees things slightly different anyways. And and really when we say something's blue or yellow, it's just an agreed upon range that everybody sees as that thing. I just don't see things in that same range. Everything's skewed because of the way I see it. As a, as a photographer, I have to sort of rely on some of the auto settings of the camera. Okay. And the, um, oh, it's black and white. Yeah. So I think that that's the colorblindness is the main reason why I like black and white. I like you know, black and white just, too. I, th- I, I think it's awesome. Yeah, I like the I like the style. Mm-hmm. You know, it just has a different feeling. It gives you a a, a sense of character that right. I think color doesn't. Yeah, it, it loses out on it. And see, on the on the technical side of things, like black and white accentuates texture. So if you have something that's really cool and really textured. Black and white might be a good way to do it because you feel it better, mm. right? Color, color distracts from the texture because then you're drawn to whatever that color is, where that color is. And you, when you experience a photograph, you actually experience them differently, right? I mean, it's the same. When I was in college, I studied marketing. And that was one of the things that we had talked about is, you know, when you open an ad or something like that, they do studies on it. How people, what people first see and how they traverse how they move through that photo, Mm -hmm. whatever the ad is, how they move through it. And it's the same thing with photography. Color will draw you to a particular spot and you'll experience that photograph and then you'll start moving around in it. And that's actually one of the reasons why you don't want a subject centered, because if you center the subject, your eyes won't wander. You'll see it. You'll go, cool, done. (laughs) Right. You don't, you There's don't, not a story you don't there. explore it. Yeah. yeah you, you don't explore the rest of the photo. You just look at it and go, okay, that's cool. That's, you know, it is what it is. Um, but the best photos are ones that you don't stop looking at. And the reason you don't stop looking at it is because there's something that draws you through it. So for color, the color is, you know, whatever pops, you're going to see that and you're going to experience that photo different. So if you had the very same photo in color and in black and white, that can both be great. Yeah. But you're going to look at them different and you're going to feel them differently. And so that's, but for me, black and white is always drawn. It's like, that's, you know, if I have a choice, I'm going black and white. Huh. Almost always. I love it. That's cool. But yeah, the, the, the camera with the high ISO, you know, I do high ISO. High ISO, like I said before, is just, it's heat on the sensor. So as in order to, 
in order to increase the ISO, what you're really doing is the same as a guitar amp. You're just turning up the gain, right? So you're making it more sensitive. Okay. It's exactly the same thing. Um, and by turning up that gain, you're increasing the heat. Noise. Oh, the heat. Okay. Right. And yeah. the heat translates as noise. Um, because what happens, so each little pixel is basically a little photoreceptor bucket, right? And it can only take so much. And the heat makes it less able to collect. So it comes in faster, but it generates more heat and the heat then starts causing a problem. And so you get noise. And so the 5D Mark III that I'm using is the balance between that. I get a high pixel count sensor, but as a full frame sensor, it's it's a slightly bigger than an APS-C sensor, the physical size, which means that the pixels are physically further apart, which means they can dissipate heat better. So I can run at a higher ISO with less noise. I think this is a long, long way around. But for concerts, my go-to is I, I set that thing to 3200 because I know my camera can take it. And then I can shoot at my shutter speed at 125 to 160 and my aperture like f4, 5 to 5.6, no problem. It depends on the room and the lighting, of course. But if I have a darker room where I need a little bit more. My standard lens, the one that I always have on the camera, is a 24 to 70. It's the Canon L. Okay. Um, and that's a weather-sealed lens? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The bigger... Yeah, that one, it's, it's weather-sealed. Uh, my camera is weather-resistant, yeah. so that's all cool. You know, I can go outside and not worry about it too bad. That lens is an f2.8. So anybody that wants to do concert photography, 2.8 is the way to go. Do they make a like 1.4 or anything in in that or not no? for that because it's a zoom okay um right the physical makeup the of prime, it do they yeah oh yeah yeah definitely um so that's that's where i was going is the lens that's always on the camera is that 24 to 7 but if i find that i need some if i need a, a larger aperture to let more light in i have a 50 millimeter 1.4 and that one i call that one my my secret awesome you know because because it's really unassuming it's a tiny lens that's the nifty 50 right that little it's the step up oh it's the step up yeah so the nifty 50 is the 1.8 26 bucks and the other one's exactly something exactly so the but the difference in the in the image quality Okay. Yeah. So I have if you're the smaller version of that. Yeah, so I did too. I started yeah. out with it, okay. and then I got the I got the one point four. Completely recommended. Nice. So if you have the one point eight, it's a good lens. The one point four is killer. Okay. And the one point two, oh man, that thing is <laughs> that thing is so great. I love also that thing. Also a fifty millimeter. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't have that one. I have I have a couple of friends that have it. Okay. So we'll we'll trade back and forth. What do those run? A lot. A lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The I think the fifty is like. 12 or 1300 okay, for yeah. the 1.2. Yeah. Um, like every lens I'm looking at is, is, you know, upwards of two grand. Up and I'm up and like, up. I know. <laughs> I know. That's the thing. I, I, I look at that camera bag and see what I, I mean, I don't carry an awful lot in it, but I know how much each one of those things costs. And this goes back to what I was saying before. The only reason that I buy these things is because I realized that the current thing that I have won't do what I'm trying to do. That makes sense. Right. And so uh, the 24 to 70 2.8 lens, that I have, well, I had I had the other one, one below it, the 3.5 to 5.6, 24 to 70, and I realized that I was shooting at f5.6 all the time, and I couldn't get that really cool background I was going for. I couldn't get that nice portrait background, mm-hmm. and so I went to 2.8. And the other thing that I realized is that when I had a, a previous cameras that didn't have the noise handling capabilities, I needed that wider aperture to allow the same amount of light in with 
out the noise. And so I went to all the 2.8 lenses and I could get that. And now I have the ISO handling and the aperture. And I was like, all right, I'm in, you know, <laughs> so I can do all that. But each time I got all these new pieces, right. it was specifically because I knew I needed some specific function that I couldn't perform with what I was trying to do or couldn't do it the way that I wanted to do. So yeah, I have the 2470 2.8 L lens. I have the 70 to 200 L lens with the um, image stabilization in it. And I mean, that thing, uh, 100% worth it. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it costs a lot, but I've had that lens. That was my first L lens. Mm -hmm. You know, that was the one that I got in. It was like, I got it, I put it on the camera, I took a photo, I'm like, oh my God. What does the L lens so stand for? Um, I don't know what L stands for, but that's their that's their professional level, okay. their high end. Got it. And then, like I said, that 51.4, it was the same thing. I, I had the 1.8. I put the 1.4 on, saw what it could do. I was like, oh my God, these are so much better. Yeah. You know, it's worth the extra money. It just, at some point, breaking down and buying that extra thing, you know? Yeah. And then the other one that I carry with me all the time is I have, I, I bought a Sigma Art. Mm -hmm. It's the 12 to 24 wide lens. That thing is huge because it's full frame. And so, I mean, it's, there's no filters for it. That thing is, just gigantic. It was like a <laughs> basketball at the end of your camera, you know? <laughs> thing is huge. But it's it's a wide, it's not a fisheye lens. Right. So it's a wide lens. So you get some distortion on the edges, but man, that thing is so clean. Yeah. So yeah, it's another one. It was just like, it was 1600 for that one. But it's because I had a different one and I knew I couldn't do what I wanted with it. Right. So... Do you feel like the Sigma glass is as good as the Canon glass or is it? Is I'm there a super difference? happy with that one. Okay. Yeah. Cool. The Canon wide lens cost about a thousand dollars more. And right. at the time I knew I needed a, I needed a full frame wide lens because what I was trying to do and I just wasn't getting it with what I had. And I was looking at both of them and you know, I tried out the Canon lens, I tried out the Sigma lens and for a thousand dollars at that point, I just couldn't see a difference. Okay. Like that, that Sigma lens, I'm really happy with yeah. that one. What song or album, back to music, or artist would you recommend listening to? I listen to tons and tons of stuff. I listen to all kinds of different music. I definitely have my favorites. Sure. You know, and it always, for me, it always just comes down to mood, and I'm almost almost always have a song running through my head too. <laughs> right now it's some commercial jingle. I don't know why. <laughs> it's terrible. That would have been good for your marketing class, yeah, I guess, right? right? Yeah. But the um, I learned a long time ago. I what I what I call it is I can change the channel in my head. You know, it's like I hear that jingle and, you know, it's like that earworm thing. I'm like, yeah. man, I don't want to listen to that. So I just start singing something else. In my okay, head, there you know? go. I'm just like, I'll do that. I'll just push it out. It'll be fine. I'll change the channel. The one that comes to mind for me was, it was one I used to do in college all the time. When I wanted to concentrate, when I was getting ready for finals or whatever it was, when I needed to think and just not be distracted and just get into my world, I would listen to Joe Pass. Uh, oh, wow. Super cool jazz guitarist. Yeah. He did this, um, the album is called Virtuoso. Yeah, he's got more than one Virtuoso album, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it was the first one. Okay. And I would sit and it's just, it's him on a stool playing. No, With no drums, like no bass, no guitar, band. Like an acoustic guitar, isn't it? Like a steel yeah, string it's, acoustic. Yeah, it's, it's actually oh, is it? one of is those. It it's like a... Ibanez Joe Pass guitar? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's, well, I don't. It's not the signature one, but it's okay. you know it's a hollow body um, electric. Yeah, like a three thirty five or something like that. Yeah, okay. Um, but yeah, it's just him playing. And that's yeah. it. Just him. And for whatever reason, that one helped me focus. Yeah. So anytime I really needed to, you know, just cut out the distractions, 
that's the one I would put on. I could focus. I could listen to it. It would just be there and cutting all the other stuff out and I could do what I needed to do. So he was so good. Oh man. It just I love listening to him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Blows my mind. I, I had a great jazz teacher, uh, Ralph Fava at Lockport music in New York. Yeah. And he knew Joe pass a little bit. He knew, he knew Tommy Tedesco and all those guys. He used to have us like learn Joe Pass stuff and listen to it a lot and everything. And it was like, oh my God. (laughs) And he played, uh, with Ella Fitzgerald and, uh, like just that duo of them without a band was just so phenomenal. Oh my God, that would have been so great. Two people at the top of their, you know, just in their prime. And then he did some instructional videos, one of which he said, I don't bother with theory because it confuses me. Now, this is somebody that could play <laughs> anything more you wanted. Chord, more, yeah, anything you wanted and more chords in, a, you know, in uh-huh. 60 seconds than most people can play notes. You mm-hmm. know? The other thing he said that was really profound to me was there's only three kinds of chords, major, minor, and dominant. And I was just like, oh. There he you just go. took that whole jazz like complexity of like right. the Mickey Baker books one and two with the, you know, the forty seven <laughs> chords is lesson number one and they're all impossible to play. Right. You know? So you're just like, this is the hardest thing ever. Yeah. One of my one of my instructors in college, um, I tried to get a minor and I never was able to do it. Minor in music. Mm-hmm. The head of the music school for guitar, he wrote this chord book, right? And it was like two hundred thousand chords. And he said he did it, and he said he wouldn't put a chord in there that he couldn't physically finger. But he still came up with like 200,000 different chords. I'm like, wow, are you kidding me? I just need like, you know, some basics. I don't, I don't need this crazy minor second. Well, blah, really blah, what blah. it is, you're just adding a scale tone to a chord. That's right. what Joe was saying. It's like, it's minor. Yeah. Minor nine is a minor chord, a minor seven is a minor chord. Yeah. yeah. You know, a 13 chord is a dominant chord. Right. A, a diminished chord is a dominant chord. Yeah. So they just all want to go yeah. somewhere. Yeah, I actually have uh, somewhere over in that pile of books, there's the Joe Pass Virtuoso uh, instructional book. Nice. Yeah, I never got very good at it. (laughs) (laughs) I got a couple of, I bought that a couple of times. I loaned it out last time, didn't get it back. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, if you need one, I've got one over there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, that was the one that, that one, it helped me focus. Beyond that, I mean, I don't even know how many CDs I've got and how many MP3s I've got. I just, put them on random and let them go there you go so yeah i love all kinds of stuff i mean my go-to is metal okay um hard rock and metal is where i i studied jazz in college Uh, again not well enough to get a minor out of it but you know well a minor in music is almost as hard as a major in music yeah it was it was difficult it was a that goes back to my shyness because it was an it was audition Mm. and i just i could never get to that you know and then when i was doing organ i could sight read organ Mm mm-hmm I never got good enough to sight read guitar. Yeah. I couldn't sight read the chords. I mean, I can sight read tab and I can read music. If mm-hmm. So if somebody presents me with music, I can actually look at it and figure out what's going on. It takes me time. Sure. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing, you know, it was an audition to try and get into it. And I just, you know, it was a minor. I was doing it because I love music right. and not for anything other than. And so I took all the classes I could that weren't performance classes, you know, history and all the other stuff. Cool. And, uh, you know, just got to the end of my college career and was like, I don't need a minor. Right. I just need to, <laughs> yeah, I need to graduate and be done with this. There you go. <laughs> so is creativity or skill more important as an artist? Uh, we talked about this a little earlier. They yeah. have to go hand in hand. Yeah. Um, if you're, if you're fully technical and that's it, in my opinion, you're good at reproducing, okay. right? But you have to have both in order to make 
something different. And I think they have to, they have to be both there. Yeah. You know, I mean, from my own perspective, early on, I, I wanted to take the picture, but I didn't know how to take the picture. Mm-hmm. And so I had to go figure that out. Each time I would take a picture and I would look at it and go, man, why doesn't my picture look like this guy in the magazine? Well, you know, what is it different? What do I need? That's where the technical had to come in. The same thing for music, right? I mean, I can hand a guitar to somebody that doesn't know how to play a guitar and they can pluck a few things and, you know, put a few fingers down and come up with something. If you have the ear for it, it's cool. You can find some things. Like when I was trying to figure out Best of Both Worlds when I was right. a kid, you know, I could hear what I wanted to do, but Van Halen, it's not. That's where those those things have to go together. It mm-hmm. depends on where you're trying to go with it too, right? How much you want to put into it. Yeah. Um, but they've got to balance. I like that. What are some difficult times you've faced as an artist? Taking a job I wasn't necessarily ready for, mm-hmm. you know, it goes back to the technical thing. Yeah. It's like, but at the same time, without taking that job, I don't think I would get better. If I didn't say, yeah, I think I can pull that off. Or yeah, I think if I don't try, I'm never going to get better. And so I think the the difficult pieces are when you sort of bite off a little more than you really can do you know it's like you you say yeah yeah i can i can do this but it's not necessarily bad it's just as long as you know how to get help right you know i did a i did a wedding a while ago and being colorblind i would have preferred to shoot this particular wedding with a flash but they asked specifically for no flash okay fine you know i can do that that's that's not a big deal when i got there the room was sort of this pale yellow beige kind of color it had a weird color cast to it yeah. right the the problem that i had is the bride's dress this was multiple marriage for them so they weren't going like the full big thing they went to have a really cool party it was great the bride's dress was a similar color as the room oh, wow and i had such a hard time trying to color balance this thing because i'm colorblind and so i can fiddle with things but what i do as as a as a colorblind person when i'm when i'm editing something there's a lot of things that i can do there's um a lot of tools that i can use that I don't have to know the color. I can figure out with the tool, I can get it right. And this particular one, I fiddle with it and I tried things and I did stuff and I, I would ask my wife. So if I'm having trouble with color, I go to her. Yeah. Like, what do I need to do this? How do I fix this? And then I understand the tool. I can make the tool do what I want it to do. I just need the eyeballs to do it, right? But this wedding, I couldn't get it right. I, I just couldn't. And so that was difficult because it's a wedding. You can't redo it. There are no do-overs of the wedding. That's the super stressful thing about weddings and the reason that wedding photographers charge as much as they do because it takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of confidence and it takes a lot of understanding of what's going on because there are no redos. You have to be there. You have to get it. But this one, I got the photos. I just couldn't figure out how to color fix them. And so that was tough. What occurred to me is that I've got lots of photographer friends. And so I have a friend and I asked her, I was like, can I outsource this to you? I'll, I'll pay you if you can just, all I need you to do is color balance them and then I'll do the rest of the edit. I just need the balance to be there. And so I had her color balance the set for me and then she sent them back to me and I was able to finish up the work, but I just needed to get that range corrected. You know, that so was that smart. was, yeah. And that's the thing. It's, it's okay to bite off a little bit more than you can chew as long as you have a path. The last thing you want to do is let somebody down and go, I couldn't do it. Sorry. Here's a bunch of crap. You right. know, I mean, that's that's not cool. I think that that's the thing that I struggle with the most is saying I can do something and then realizing how far in I'm at. You yeah. know, it's like, ooh, yeah, oh, I'm going to this is going to be. Well, there's almost always some unseen things that can happen when you're when you're taking on anything new. It's 
part of the learning is learning how to navigate that. Right. And it's great if you can ask for help for any of it. You yeah. know, I don't think any anybody's truly alone unless they've sort of chosen that. Right. <laughs> and that's right. that's a different thing altogether then. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same with the same with music. I mean, when when Ted asked me to join Bad Ellie as a bass player, it's like I'm not really a bass player. I have a bass. I can yeah. play a bass. Sure, yeah. why not? I can do this. And uh, what occurred to me is that once I started doing it, I started playing. It was like a guitar, you know. It's pop punk, so it's 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 on the go. It's energetic. It's yeah. easy to. And so I play along, and it was great. We got some cool songs. And the thing that occurred to me is like, well, if I'm going to be a bass player, I should learn how to play a bass. I want to learn the difference between a guitar player and a bass player. And I'm sort of in the middle at this point. I'm not like the pocket groove. That's where I'm going. That's where I'm trying to get. Right. And it's learning. Had I not said. Uh, sure, why not? Then right. I would have still wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. Doing that, learning how to play with my fingers, that was a big thing. It was like, well, if I'm going to be a bass player, I'm going to be a real bass player yeah. with my fingers on the right hand, you know. So I figured out, and I'm I'm adding that third finger in. So cool. now I've got three finger on my on my right hand, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, so it's just it's one of those things. It's like, okay, well, now I need to learn that skill. Yeah, you know, I can I can take my guitar knowledge and understanding of the fretboard and all that kind of stuff, but I want to know how a bass player plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, there's a big difference. You know, well, I think so much of that is the listening too. It's yeah. it's knowing what the kick and the snare are doing all the right. time, and right. then how to lock <clears throat> in with that and what yeah. the song needs. Whether you should push the beat, yeah. pull the beat back yeah. a little, exactly. or beat on the beat. And right. Those are, those are three very different ways yeah. to play the same thing. So. Yeah, exactly. So that's cool. Well, I think also like your path. If you started with guitar and then you went to bass, you're going to play bass always differently than if you exactly. started with bass. Um, right. It's like I don't think Dave Grohl would write songs the same way he does if he didn't start with the drums. Right. Know? Right. And I'm glad he writes songs the way he does. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's what makes all of us us, right? Yeah, exactly. So how have you learned to overcome adversity? You have to be able to ask for help. You have to understand what you can and can't do. It's not that you can't learn it, but at the time that you need it, you got to be able to ask. My wife and I joke, we always say, are you being stubborn? You know, <laughs> it's like, is it time to ask for help? Do you need something or are you just being stubborn about uh, that's it? That's a good question to ask somebody. Yeah. So. Rather than just making the statement, you're being stubborn. Right, right. <laughs> Turn it around. It's like, yeah. yes, I'm being stubborn. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, this is what we're going to do. Yeah, I think asking for help is, is the biggest thing. Put yourself out there and try, and if you need it, ask for help. So what is the perfect way for a photographer to show their work? Man, if you can figure <laughs> that out, let me know. I, know. Uh, is, I, I don't know. I put stuff online and it drives me crazy because I have to watermark it. Even if I watermark it, I find that people will take it, crop it, change it. And, you know, so basically once you put it online, you lose control. Mm. There's nothing out there. It's there. There's no control anymore. There's an illusion of copyright and ownership and blah, 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 but it's really not. Yes, technically it's yours and, and it's yours to do with what you want, but it's online, which means anybody has access to it. So one of the things that I do is I I won't share a full-size photo. Oh, wow. The Everything that I share is shrunk. If it's a commission's job, then of course they get full and full size everything. Right? Yeah, and yeah. That's different. But just for my online presence and stuff like that, mm-hmm. nothing is full size. The the other thing is that I watermark everything, and I've gone through a bunch of different iterations of watermarking. There's the super big, obnoxious, opaque, see-through one that goes over the whole thing, which I hate, 
because it ruins the photo. It, right. it ruins that flow that we were talking like about. Like the Adobe stock, uh, yeah, how they do it. Where it's all over everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I do that, and I struggle with the placement of the watermark. I try to place the watermark somewhere where it's in the photo, and if I can envision how somebody might crop it or use it or reuse it, I try to stick it within that area that I think is the the money Important the part, money yeah, area yeah. right so that that thing stays there a lot of times i'll just plop it down in the corner if it's in the opposite corner of the subject right it's gone it goes away nobody sees it that kind of thing that watermark is really the it's a rule i, I won't put it out there there are some ways that i do uh, sometimes i share without but uh yeah i try to put that watermark in there because like i said once i put it online you lose control of it. It's public access by anybody who wants to access it. You know, so if that watermark travels along with it, hopefully it gets a little bit of recognition, a little bit of branding, that yeah. kind of thing. Okay. People see it. And then ultimately what the goal is, is that people over and over see that and go, oh man, I, I like really dig stuff. this stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then when it comes time for photos, they go, hey, you know, what about this guy? Let's right. try him out. Let's go look it up and see what it is. That's that's kind of the thing. As for how to share that, oh, man. You know, like I said before, my platforms are Instagram and, play, and Facebook. It's generational, right? And my generation, our generation, is Facebook-centric. That's the platform where the most people of my age, of my peer group, yeah, exactly, yeah. that's where they live. Yeah. Facebook and bleeding into Instagram. That's where I focus. And the problem that I've got with those things is that they have sharing algorithms. Mm -hmm. So I've got a Facebook page, which doesn't get a lot of traffic because it doesn't get shared. It doesn't make it out there, mm -hmm. right? Um, Instagram is a little bit better because with hashtags and things like that, it's easier to traverse Instagram. You can hashtag on Facebook too, but it doesn't get used the same way. The actual, the Facebook users, people don't generally uh, trace hashtags on Facebook. Okay. Um, but on Instagram, it's super easy. You just click on the tag, go look at all the photos. And as a photographer, that's what I want. I want to, I want you to see my photo. I want it to be in front of you. And so that's the good way. And now that they've, now that they've merged at the same company, essentially, um, sharing back and forth cross platform actually makes that a lot easier too, but still on Facebook, the, alg the algorithms don't put the photos in front of all of the audience. Okay. Um, and so it's tough um, until, until you reach, just like everything else, until you reach that high thousands and thousands of followers, blah, 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 then you'll get a subset that are always seeing your photos and that mm -hmm. kind of thing, and it drives. Um, I'm just, I'm not there. Right. And so trying to figure out how to do that sharing is a is a tough thing i've thought about doing art showings and things mm -hmm. like that the downside is it's expensive it's very expensive yeah you've got to put a lot of time and energy and money into all of these prints and then at the end of it you end up with a lot of prints mm -hmm. and hopefully and people want them not always yeah so and trying to figure out specifically which ones do i want to print um, yeah, out of 250,000, that's, uh, that's, that's a lot tough. of photos for sure. Well, thank so. you for the insights on that. Yeah, like yeah. I said, if you figure it out, let me know. Yeah, let Paul know. <laughs> all right. How should an artist learn how to see composition, depth of field, all those things? I mean, you mentioned the books. Yeah, I read a lot of books. And each time I picked up a book, it was because I heard a new term or a new idea or something like that. I'm like, oh, what's this depth of field thing? After I read that exposure book, that was the next step. I was like, well, I don't understand this depth of field. How do I start? Where do I go with that? And learning some basics of that. And then I picked up some composition books and stuff like that. To try and do those things, practice, 
really. I mean, over and over again, practice. It's practice and then maybe different layers and levels of understanding with them, right? Right, right? It's like you can get the concept. Like I watched a couple of YouTube videos about those things when I was first starting. Right. And I was just like, okay, I kind of get it. And then I went up with my camera and I'm just like, what was that thing? And yeah. how do I find it on here? And, yeah, you know, I'm exactly. flick, flipping through the screen, like yep. totally missing my mark on like, right. meanwhile, everything that's interesting, it's I was going to take pictures <laughs> in the light and yeah. everything. Just like, but that's the only way to do it yeah. is to, if you want to work on depth of field, um, you know, depending on, are you looking for portrait depth of field or landscape depth of field or something like that? Looking it up, like finding that basic piece, right? So depth of field, let's say, if you wanted to work on portrait depth of field, you don't necessarily need a person to do that. You can just do close up stuff or whatever it is, but you find something, you take a picture of it and then you start changing the aperture and see what happens to it. Really? You know, the, when you're first learning those things, the automatic modes on the camera are super helpful because you can just pay attention to them, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're working on depth of field, you put in an aperture priority mode on your camera and then you can change the aperture, but you watch what the shutter and the ISO are doing, right? So each different time you change it, see what the cameras, what the auto settings are trying to pick up. And that'll help understand how those three relate to each other. So with the Canon cameras, aperture priority mode is the only place I see to change the aperture. Is that not the case? If you put it in shutter priority, you can actually affect the aperture. Okay. But it won't stick, I guess. is That's sort of the idea that I get out of this. With the shutter priority, you're managing the shutter. But with the other wheel on your camera, you can change the, you can change the aperture along with it, but it won't stay that way. It'll switch back to auto for the next shot. Okay. And the same with aperture priority mode. You can you can set the aperture and it'll stick and then you can adjust the shutter if you want with the back knob, but it won't it'll it'll stay that way for that shot and then go then back to auto back. mode again. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And the ISO you can actually there is an auto ISO mode too. And this goes back into the technical part of how the camera actually works and mm-hmm. what auto really means for a camera. Auto mode on a camera is balance. And that's, that's all it is. It's just balance. So what it tries to do, um, if you put it in full auto, what it's trying to do is make sure that you don't lose any shadows and you don't lose any highlights. It's trying to keep those two things within range. And what that generally means is that you lose some dynamic too. Yeah. The first steps into trying and figuring all these things out is to think about those, right? What am I trying to do? What happens if I let that highlight go out? What if I put it in manual mode and see what this does? Or what if I put it in aperture mode and see what the camera's doing with the auto? And then once I get a feel for how those things balance with each other, then I can start fiddling with it, right? You look at the scene and go, well, I want this to be a little bit on the dark side, you know? So now I know how to do that because I can keep all those things. So essentially all you're doing is just, it's a faucet, right? That might be a way, it's a faucet with three knobs. Okay. And what you're trying to do is figure out how to get the right amount of thing in that faucet. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you have a certain amount of flow that you're trying to get, that would be the light coming into the camera. So you turn the knobs on the faucet until you get the right flow. And then, you know, you have a hot, a cold and whatever the third one might be. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but, you know, you're trying to balance. So, you know, if you're if you're just talking about aperture and shutter, you have a hot and a cold knob. And what the camera's trying to do is not burn you. Right. Right. And so. So it's keeping everything sort of safe. It's middling. It. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
And so what you're trying to do is you're just like, I wanted this to be a little bit hotter, a little bit colder, a little bit, you know, so you're starting to, you start changing those things and see how they relate to each other and what you can do with them. And then figuring out how to balance all that stuff. And then you can decide where the balance is instead okay. of the camera. The camera's always going to go for exposure. They call it an 18% gray. And that's where the camera is going to go. It's going to look for that middle 18% gray is just like, gray and that's where all the balance is going to go the white balance is going to go there the aperture shutter and iso are all going to sit right there to make sure that that 18 percent gray is exactly 18 percent gray which also means that your highs and your lows are going to be a little bit dull and you know that kind of stuff so so yeah it gives you this like nice even curve but learning how to work the camera is understanding how those bits relate to each other and then changing them and so to figure out depth of field figure out you know what does what does cloudy white balance do to me you know all those kinds of things mm -hmm. is really just i want to see what this does and you go for that portrait you take a portrait at let's say you have a a, a 2.8 lens right you take a portrait at 2.8 you take a portrait at four at 5.6 seven ones you know and you keep on doing and then as long as your subject stays in the exact same place and all you're changing is that aperture and maybe letting the you know if you're an aperture priority let the camera mess with the shutter don't worry about that but change that aperture and then look at the background and see what it does to that background each time you change that aperture and then you'll start getting a feel for what that means right the number's not necessarily important it's just what that thing is actually doing the number relates to how the camera actually works if you want to know that cool go look it up <laughs> you know but understanding you know what the lower number versus a higher number what that what that really is doing to your photo just take a bunch of photos and you know see which one you like see what see what looks best to you and then like i said the camera on your phone so if you're messing with that depth of field thing take the same shot with your phone and see what the difference between 2.8 on your on your camera and 2.8 on your phone is because mm -hmm. that gets into there's some technical it gets into there that that goes back to sensor size the physical sensor size is going to change that depth of field yeah so 2.8 on a phone and 2.8 on a on an slr uh, even 2.8 on an, on a full frame slr versus a medium format versus a apc uh, sensor they're all different you know they're all the same number but that number is relative to the actual camera the, yeah the sensor size is what that's relative to okay and each one is going to be different and so that's just you know the way to figure out what all that means is just take a bunch of photos and see what the difference is yeah. You know, the same thing with shutter. When I was in college, one of our assignments was motion blur, right? So I went downtown and I'm on Front Street, still Front Street at the time, because, you know, that was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> but I was on Front Street and I started taking pictures. I started panning cars as they were going by so that I could see what the motion blur looked like, right? I'd end up with this blur and then at the front of it would be this car shape. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. So you start fiddling with that. You, you change the shutter speed. So I slow the shutter way down. I get a lot more blur out of it. You speed the shutter way up, then it'll freeze that thing. But at the same time, when you're doing that, the aperture has to change. Because if you don't change the aperture and you change that shutter, you're going to get it probably start out with a really well exposed shot and then end up with a really dark shot because they have to balance with each other. You have to make sure that the right amount of light is still hitting the sensor. Yeah, but it's just practice could you analyze it the same way as like an, a guitar amplifier with you've got your you know low mid and high frequencies and if you turn the low all the way up and the high and the mid are all the way down 
it sounds a certain way, but if you yeah. blend the low and the high, it sounds right. a different way. If you blend the low, high, and the mid, right, it sounds yeah it yeah. I mean, it's all it's all about the balance, and it really is the sound that you're going for. So if you've got a bass amplifier and you're just trying to you know do some like dub low end stuff, you turn the mids and the highs down, you get that just deep you know boom sound. Yeah. But you get no attack. You get no. You, you don't get anything else that goes along with it. Versus, right. So the clarity isn't there and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. And then you know you're playing funk. You want to turn those things up a little bit so you can hear the pop and you can yeah, hear all the other stuff that goes pop. along with it. Yeah. Same thing with the camera. If you want, if you want kind of a dark photo, then you sort of shut everything down. You you increase your shutter speed or you increase your aperture to let less light into the thing. You get a darker photo. Hmm. Versus. If you bring those things, if you open them up, you slow down the shutter, you open up the aperture, you're letting more light in, you're going to get, you know, more details and stuff like that to the extent where you might be overgoing, right? So you get dark versus light, that kind of thing. It's just, you know, figuring out really the sound or the look that you're going for, right? Nice. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. I like that. Find out more at artmedianorthwest.com. A-R-T-M-E-D-I-A-N-W.com. Mm-hmm.